Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. And we're back with the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, uh, first episode for 2019. Your host, Josh Shelton, with my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, hope the new year's going good, buddy. Uh, it's been been interesting for us so far. Yeah, man. Yeah, I was, uh, as you know, we got to sit down Friday a little bit. I was in Monroe, um, was in Houston, Texas. And, uh, you know, Josh, I guess it's official now. I can say it. I'm now the, I've worked at R-Square Global since 2000, I think six and uh, five, maybe you don't know, 2005. Yeah. And so now I can say that uh, on Friday, I signed the papers to purchase the company. So now that's official. And so that was a big day for me and, um, excited and, uh, I know we got some news that you got. Hopefully, next we record now on Mondays, so people understand we've been recording on Fridays. We record on Mondays now, so uh, but got some news next Monday. Hopefully for uh, for Josh as well. Oh, a couple other things, Josh. Man, so much. Um, so Roddy Strong gift baskets. Okay, I have one of the one of the listeners reached out to me. I don't have it handy here, uh, but one of the listeners reached out to me. So if I call your name out again, um, I, I got you down. I just don't remember which one it was for the show. The two gift basket winners were new to to the tall city, new to the tall city, and then MacArthur, I think we said, M-A-C-A-R-S-E-R. Those won the gift baskets, and West Texas with the money signs in there, you won the VIP tour. If you're not sure exactly how that works, go to last week's episode, or I guess episode 88, not last week's, but the last one in your feed and you can see all that also josh we got a website coming texasolandgaspodcast.com hope to have it up next week or two and in that will be our next giveaway which is a fishing trip a fishing trip um um down in south texas and so uh, if you want to go fishing with josh and me or just me mainly um you know then you will be we'll, we'll have all that entered um We'll have all of that set up where you can enter in for that giveaway, and that is our new sponsor, Baffin Bay Rod and Gun. You can check them out at baffinbayrodandgun.com. We're going to have a once-a-month show from there, or part of our show at least from there, and they're going to give us some quick fishing uh, information, news tips, what's going on down there. But, yeah, man, I'm excited about that, to go, get, 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 uh, go down there and go fishing once a month. Yeah, man, I'm I'm super stoked about that, man, whether they want to or not i'm there so <laughs> doesn't really matter uh, huh no no not this time i'm uh and again we'll have the textualnestpodcast.com website will be up hopefully by the time this next episode.com uh this next episode comes out um and we'll have all the information um about the giveaway and how you can sign up and uh more information about the folk our sponsor there um and uh, josh i think i think we kind of covered all of the all the news, the kind of the the quick hitter news, if you will, from the from the break. Yeah, you know, uh, I'm, I've been thinking about uh, what we wanted to cover this week. There's been so much information, Ben, that we've had you know two or three weeks off. Uh, there's been so much that's come out. Um, you know, there been lots of stuff in 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 the news about you know lower oil and gas prices. And uh, I thought just for reference, I would go back to early in the year uh, last year and just look at where we're at. I don't know if you recall, Ryan, but we were uh, around $50 a barrel. uh, And we were basically projecting that by the end of the year, we would be up to around $59. That would be like, there was a lot of hedging going on. And 
for us, uh, we were we were hoping just to stay at 50. At 50, everyone, it seems, was uh, was profitable. I know the Eagleford and the Permian, if uh, oil and gas prices stayed there, then they they were expecting to turn a pretty good profit. So now with oil and gas prices being around 45, I think people, because we got up to around 80 this year, people see it in, a, in a quite a, a little different light. But if you get step back a little bit and look get some perspective, um, we were in a similar position around this time last year and, uh, you know, we had the bottleneck and things that were happening. So, um, I, there are going to be some articles that we talk about that are looking at companies and their profitability and some of the stocks. I think overall, um, I think the companies are, are going to, going to fare pretty well this year, even, even with stocks being down temporarily. Um, and with that, Ryan, there's several articles that we were going to look at. One's with Chevron Shell Chief uh, oversees a big bet on the Permian. Uh, Chevron F. Gustafson is a Chevron executive holding uh, – he's a vice president, I believe, of the of the company. And they they have been kind of playing the long game in the Permian and just jumping in and, uh, and getting right out in, in the Permian like the other companies are. They've been kind of watching what people are doing, finding out the strategy that yield uh, more efficient numbers and you know we talked about this ron uh, i think when drilling info came on the show didn't we when uh we were talking about big data and other companies having access to other companies and what they're doing and how they're turning a profit and their efficiency and we weren't sure if other companies had that access but it appears that chevron does doesn't it uh maybe in what, in what regard do you mean you know, so uh, Chevron says they've been watching other companies and what they're doing to get more efficiency from their drilling wells. Oh, yeah. Um, you see what I'm saying? And yeah. when we asked the company, said, well, um, so sh- these other companies may not want Chevron to be able to see what they're doing because Chevron can basically sit back, let them spend all their time and money and, and tap a few wells out. And they can say, OK, this is how we need to do it because they've had great success and then go in and implement the models that are working best in the Permian right off, right out, right out the gate. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also to that, Josh, is that, um, you know, each company, we said this before, each company has their own business, business strategy. And so you get, you got to keep that in mind. And that's some of the things that they talk about in this article is that, you know, they had, they, they've had their acreage for, uh, I think, you know, 10 years, I think it references in this article and they decided to keep it, um, Instead of getting out of it when it wasn't really the sexy thing to do, so they they seem like you know one of the things that they're talking about here is they're gonna play a little bit a little bit slow, a little bit more safe. Um, what I found interesting is you know the talk about how they're looking at the rocks and some of the rocks is uh, some of the rocks is some of the rocks and some of the areas are, are better. And so if you had a map, you know, kind of mapping out where their acreage is, you could almost kind of go in there and say, okay, well, this is where Chevron's acreage is. According to this article, at least you should expect um, the returns to be better in these areas. And it might be something to look for as they roll out their drilling program the next few years to see, okay, Hey, this is where they're going to be drilling at based upon this piece, at least saying, Hey, this is where, um, we have found the, the, the better return on the, um, on, on, on the rocks. You know, so, so this rock's producing better than this rock. So if you had a map again to kind of say, okay, well, we know where this rocks, these types of rocks are, we know where their, their acreage is. You can kind of figure out where, where they plan to drill moving forward. Um, so I thought that was kind of an interesting look. Yeah, you know, and one of the questions that this is an interview. So one of the questions they asked him is, "What about uh, Chevron's decision to sit patiently in the Permian and wait and learn until now?" And uh, his answer was, "It was just a different strategic approach, like you mentioned. They have a different strategy, 
And they said, given the acreage position, they had the opportunity to learn a lot. Uh, part of their core, we take a very disciplined approach to investment. We're not driven by near-term production results or big pops this quarter or next quarter. So we had the opportunity to watch the basin develop and then quickly. Uh, he says he hates the term swallowing because it almost has a negative connotation. But um, they had the right strategy. And uh, let's see what he says here. Um, they had to determine what the productive and what completion designs and well designs made the most sense. Right. And he says, I wouldn't say copy that, but we could learn from what from that and make it fit the Chevron. So they were very much watching what other people were doing to see the kind of yields they were getting, what was getting the best results. And he says they don't necessarily copy it, but they factored that into what their plan going forward is in the Permian. Uh, so they're the sort of company who, and we talked a little bit about this with bigger companies, they don't have to, they don't have to profit as quickly to keep from going bankrupt. You know, right. They have the ability to. Uh, to really analyze things and and try to get you know an efficient approach from the wells that they put in, which um, interesting you know, interesting article for sure. Reading it, reading it and seeing their strategy and their thought process behind what they've been doing this year and you know the last two years really. Yeah, and, and one final thing on that is he says in there that they're looking. They don't comment about. They're asked about buying some acreage, and he says, "Well, we don't really comment on that directly, but we are looking to consolidate our acreage and get rid of uh, non-strategic. I think is what he said, or acreage that's not near their core business." Um, and so I, I, I think we've talked about this a lot, Josh, and it kind of gets lost is that we're, we we probably will see companies, especially as prices fluctuate and they go downward. If, if prices stay low, you'll probably see more um, companies looking to you know move acreage from you know you know they got core acreage over here and they got some acreage that's not necessarily near that then they, they wouldn't surprise us to see hey okay well this makes better sense to swap with you know chevron and pioneer or whoever it may be to swap acreage so i, I kind of we hadn't we talked about that in a while and i saw that again i thought okay yeah with prices lower again we might see companies coming back in and moving um their acreage from company a to company b or just outright selling it or whatever to consolidate to keep costs down mm. Well, um, CNBC, Ryan, had an article that came out earlier this week. I think it was around Monday or Tuesday. And the title of the article is Oil and Gas Business Activity Plunges, Outlook Turns Negative, Dallas Fed Survey. Some of my comments right when we uh, – some of the kind of the pro to, to the show when I was talking about where we were at last year is in reference to this article mainly um, that they are looking at where oil prices are at 59 – Seven on well, they're projecting it would be at fifty nine ninety seven, which is basically sixty a barrel by the end of twenty nineteen, and they're talking about uh, the jobs market. There's uh, the first job loss in a year and a half was reported in December uh, in the oil and gas, in a specifically Texas market, um, and just a lot of things going on here. Um, they're uh, there's mainly negative, uh, mainly negative feel for the first quarter this year is is what the article has. But it does have a little bit of uh, projected increases in the oil prices, and they're expecting. You know, the the question really is going to be with OPEC and what they do, uh, and they're they're really, uh, you know, nobody's really sure it, uh, of that at this point. Yeah, it's you know, anytime you do these things, we always talk about well, okay, you know, how many people are polled, who's polled, what's the sample size, things like that. Um, but you know, I, one of the things I I, I took away so from this piece is that it's it's a little bit deceiving i think on some levels at least it's it's helping back um um it's its own premise with, with the bullet points at the top it says falling in oil 
price collapse, executives in the region think U.S. crude oil will end 2019 at $59.97 on average, lower than 2017 closing price. And as you mentioned at the start of the show, at the end of 2017, we were saying, hey, if we could stay 55 to 60, that would be really good. You know, mm-hmm. that would be really good. Exactly. And now, um, basically a year later, we're sitting here saying, well, sixty dollars a barrel, man. We we're gonna we're gonna struggle to make something. And and and, and I understand that the rates for the um, for the for the service providers and things can change. But I, I kind of read that and I thought, you know, that, that's not really that's kind of a misrepresentation. If if prices were stable at sixty, we think I think everyone agrees the industry would be doing well, doing very well. Yeah. The other thing it said is it says one of the key findings in the survey. Um, it, it, and it references the same thing again, that oil executives think U.S. crude prices will end 2019 at $50.97 on average. And it says that would make a fairly market, a fairly moderate recovery. And, and um, because it says that the price is at 47.09 as of Thursday, last Thursday. So and I thought, okay, so if we're saying that $50.97 um, is where we want to get to, they think we'll get to, and we're at 47.09 right now, and that's a fairly moderate recovery. I mean, I don't. I was trying to pull up a report while you were talking. I couldn't find it, but um, the, I mean, we went from 50 to 97 to 70. So, and then we went down to 47. That was all last year. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> it, to me, listen, and I'm not saying anything is this. You know, I'm not saying it's going to do this or not going to do this. I'm just saying that you you read these headlines and it's like, man, did you not just see what the price did last year? It was all over the spot. You know, um, so. And as you mentioned, you know, we got to see what OPEC's going to do, how that's going to impact it. There's a lot of people predicting. Um, there's some people I follow that predict $90 Brent oil by the end of 2019. Uh, and so, you know, we get the pipelines coming on, so you won't have discount on WTI. There's all kinds of things. I would say, I, I think you would agree, we, we, we're not sitting here saying, hey, it's going to go to 100 or it's going to go to 20. Obviously, I don't think it's going to go to 20. I don't think it's going to 100 either. But these articles are a little bit, to me, they're almost um, confirmation bias, I think is the term I'm looking for, Josh. Um, and it's like, well, yes, sure, all of this could be true. But on the flip side, it could just as easily within two months hit 59.97 because of other things. Um, you know, OPEC increases out cuts. So it's one of these things you can kind of look at and say, okay, yeah, here we go. It's interesting. But who are all these people? Um, are they traders? Are they EMP companies? Already large EMP, EMP companies. And the final thing to say with all of this is, um, you always have to remember in the business world, people are putting out their opinions, like Josh and myself, <laughs> for various reasons. And so, um, you know, you know, if you if you're dealing with publicly traded companies and publicly traded companies, you know, they might want the, the stock to appear slightly below uh, the price to be slightly below where they think it's going to be because then all of a sudden. They can capitalize on that, make more money, change the predictions. So there's all kinds of stuff going on here. I, to me, it was just like, okay, yeah, maybe they're right. But, you know, it. you could also reference the fact that the price did more of a range than this last year. Heck, probably in the last four months, it did more of a range than that. Yeah, I mean, I, I was looking at where we were at uh, last year, and the projection last year was that we were going to peak at $59 a barrel um, for 2018, this was 2017 predictions uh, that were coming out, and uh, you know, like you said, you know, it went up to 70, um, and then dropped back down to 47. So I think um, the the volatility of the market it can change, but just a few a few things that you cannot predict um, can really switch these numbers and speed them up or 
know, yeah. a number of things. And, and mentioning, you know, predictions, Ryan, I don't know if you have anything else on this article, but David Blackman, one of our— Yeah, hey, yeah, uh, I, do, I do have one other thing, Josh. Um, Ellen Wald on Energy Week, uh, the other show I do, she has a tweet. I'm going to see if I can find it by the end of the show. But she has a tweet we talked about um, during our last show. And um, of, the, of the of last year, and she in the and it was it was ranking not ranking it was listing the predictions of all the big analysts who predicted the price for the end of the year for uh, Brent or WDI or both. I can't remember. Anyways, I'm trying to find it, and I, I'll try to find it, and I'll try to pull it up. We talk about the end of the show real quick because if it, this goes to show you how hard this is to predict the price, uh, these are the supposedly um, supposedly the the greatest analyst in the world, and man, they really struggle to get the price anywhere close. So, um, again, not Josh and I saying this article is bupkis because we have some special insight. It's just that, well, okay, yeah, it could be right, but on the flip side, there are so many factors going into this that it's it's really hard to to take these things with a grain of salt. Uh, that's that would be kind of my takeaway. All right. Well, we uh, just mentioned uh, David Blackman just a moment ago. He's a regular uh, guest that we have on our show. He wrote the Forbes actually this morning today, I believe. Uh, no, posted. I think I think it came out last week, Josh. The, Did it? Yeah. The, well, no, two weeks ago actually, the twenty sixth. So it's been a little bit. Oh yeah, well, I didn't realize it was out that early. I saw I saw he just put it put it on Twitter. I think this this morning he he must have just read it. Um, it uh, is eight predictions for 2019. Uh, he, he, looking at the market, looking at what's going on, um, has eight predictions for what's going to happen. And, you know, some of the volatility, he acknowledges that he knows that some of these predictions are certainly going to be wrong. Uh, but I think they're thoughtful at least. And they're really trying to take into account what's happened in the last 12 to 18 months. And, uh, so, what what are the predictions that he made that stood out to you in the most, Ryan? Well, his fifth prediction I thought was gold. It says, um, "My fifth prediction is that natural gas prices, after a brief run up to four fifty in November, will fall below three dollars in early twenty nineteen and stay there." I include this one only so that I can be assured that I get, I got at least one prediction right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, that was fun. So I uh, I did appreciate that one. Um, so he's saying in here. Um, if we talk about oil prices, he doesn't think that WTI will exceed $60 during the first half of 2019. Um, and so that kind of goes back to this last piece we're talking about, but that's just the first half of 2019. Um, and he, he kind of breaks down why he thinks this is some slowing of the U.S. drilling and completion activity, overall domestic um, production um, will continue to rise. Um but then you also had to figure out what's going to happen with OPEC. Um, he also talks about the rig count. Um, I thought this was interesting that we'll see a gradual fall in the U.S. and the domestic U.S. rig count throughout the first half of 2019. He talked about this on the show, and there, there's a lot of reasons for this. But one reason is that you're going to see um, that you know we have this this pipeline capacity issue, and so it, you know the, the rigs either got to go offline or go somewhere else. Well, by the second half, you would expect to see those. Um, those to kind of um, the pipelines, you know, uh, if, as long as the price hadn't collapsed, you'd expect to see the rigs come back onto the market as long as the price just hasn't fallen out the bottom. Um, let's see here. Uh, he had one more, I think, Josh. Um, I think one, one ahead, of yeah. them, his, uh, his fourth prediction, um, the, the, the bottleneck, that 
I think he's spot on on that. I, I don't see any reason why that, that won't be fixed. Uh, I say fixed. that The mm-hmm. capacity bottleneck mm-hmm. won't be resolved by, he says, by the third quarter of 2019. You could be in, say, fourth quarter. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that one I think is almost as sure as the fifth one. Um, yeah, I'm curious. Next time we get him on, I need to ask him because he says by the end of 2020, the region will enjoy a significant surplus of pipeline capacity. And I, and I see why he says that. I guess my question would be is how much – more would the drilling have to increase to put the pipeline um, capacity back in, in, you know, into um, peril, if you will. So if we go back to 27, uh, 2018 levels, um, the second half of 2019 into 2020, how fast would it take to catch up? Cause I know we, we talked about it which like extra 2 million barrels a day are coming on by 2019 into 2019 into 2020. So um, I had to sit there and figure out how much growth in the industry would need. It would probably be pretty substantial. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's a good article. I think his last prediction is that he says, uh, I, will be, I will be back in this space in June. Highly embarrassed about several of the predictions I made in this piece because we know that one yes. thing for sure about oil and gas, natural, uh, the oil and natural gas industry is that it's pretty much impossible to actually predict. And I think that that's the thing we got to remember here is, you know, we're making predictions and, you know, you, you look at it and you go, okay, and this is what we think because of these factors and you got to be prepared to change it. And as we look at our businesses and how we're going to handle 2019, um, I think that's the thing. And the, the final thing is, Josh, um, on this, you know, I don't see David or anyone saying, hey, we're going back to 2015 type, you know, worst case scenarios. Um, obviously, that could happen, but it feels like the market has been responsive enough to make sure that we don't go back to $20 a barrel oil. And no one wants to see that. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. Well, uh, Ryan, we have uh, a few articles I wanted to mention in the Texas Roundup where we just cover some well, any yeah, emerging. We need to mention, I guess, Josh, we have a guest coming on, so we're going to go ahead and do the Roundup first. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead and do the Roundup. Um, so there are a couple uh, – there were a few, several articles out this week. Uh, some of them we've already touched on a bit, so uh, I'll do those kind of quickly. There was a, a article that came out with Newsmax, Texas snaps two-year streak of oil field job growth. So for the last two years, month over month, uh, job growth has been increasing every month. Um, In December, I mentioned there was about 300 um, negatives. So 300 people uh, were laid off or lost their job or um, for one reason or another this month. So uh, that's not the best news. But at at the same time, I expect to turn around with with the way things are looking. Can't guarantee it. Um, But it would seem with some of the pipe some of the things that are going to be going on in the especially the second quarter this year i expect those numbers to recover pretty quickly princeton portfolio uh cabot oil and gas our good friend sergio should own for this uh cabot oil and gas is positioned uh, by 1.39 million so they've lowered cabot oil by 1.39 million in uh, in their stocks so cabot has been decreasing uh not not that's not too too much but way to go sergio way to go <laughs> yeah, he should have came on and, and about just his just reported his, the news, man. His voice would have would have made all the difference. Oh, um, <laughs> just just kidding. So, uh, Luminot brings large scale energy storage to Texas. Uh, is a subsidiary of Vistra Energy announced that its Upton Two battery energy energy storage system project is finished construction and began operating on December thirty first. So, Luminot is an energy company that is coming to Upton County. May have opportunities and things there uh, for, for those who are 
in the area. Uh, Ryan, uh, well, last thing is I didn't at the beginning of the show check our reviews. We had three reviews that came in, um, three reviews that came in over the holidays. Did you see those? Yeah, I did, Josh. I did. Go ahead with them. Okay. Uh, well, the first one is Alan Watson. Alan Watson. Um, title of the review is Kicking, uh, Keep Kicking the Chicken. Uh, I've only been listening a few months, and I really appreciate information you all here. I began working in ONG Midstream in 2012. I love hearing about developing technologies and operations across the state. I started researching on EIA and drilling info and even tracking people down on LinkedIn because of this podcast. Keep up the good work. Looking forward to many more shows. Really appreciate it, Alan. Next one, uh, fantastic content for oil and gas professionals. If you're in the industry waiting to, wanting to stay abreast of the latest and greatest or looking to enter the industry, this podcast is for you. Keep up the good work, Ryan and Josh. Thanks again, buddy. Come by. Um, that was who left uh, the review. And finally, Spikner. I said that right. Very informative. Absorb as much knowledge as possible. Great insights. Hold love. More politics intertwined with the effect in oil frackers. Um, so interesting reviews there. Really appreciate it, guys. We're up to 102 five-star reviews, and that helps awesome. us tremendously, tremendously. Awesome, we really awesome. appreciate that. Okay, so I found the tweet from Ellen Wald. First of all, thanks for the reviews. We really appreciate that. Um, here is, now this was sent out on January 1 of 2018. Okay, and so these are the world's smart people in oil and gas. So the top, this is for Brent Crew, not WTI. So for Brent Crew, the top prediction for the end of 2018 josh any guess what you thought the top predictor might predict the price of brent crude oil for 2018 would be the top predictor for yeah, 2018 the, yeah, the, high, the highest so not the not the most accurate like um what do you think the highest price predicted was 70 81 dollars a barrel wow uh, now this so this is predicted on january 1 and what they predicted would close on December 31st. So the first day of the year, we think it's going to close the last of the year. We have 81. And then it goes all the way down. The low end is $39 a barrel. So the range, and so there's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 1. There's over 20 people on this list. So you go $39 uh, all the way to $81 is the range of the analyst and um, journalist who follow this and this isn't us piling on or making look i uh, uh alfonso Colombano and myself said we thought the price was between 50 and 70 and that got blown out the first few months it's just simply to illustrate um you know got a ways to go before we figure out what's gonna happen this year um anyways all right we got uh lee denke coming on we'll wrap up the show as soon as she hops off be sure to leave a rating and review in itunes um and if you won the prize josh they need to claim it by contacting us, 318-599-9192. And that's in the show notes as well. Okay. Yeah, they better claim it, man. They're going to lose it. No doubt. No doubt. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we have a special guest coming on the show today, Lee Denke. She's a consulting engineer in the DJ Basin. Lee, great to have you on the show today. Good to be here. How are you, Josh? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Well, Lee, we know uh, we know you're a consulting engineer in the DJ Basin, and uh, there's a lot in the news this year about uh, you know Colorado. There's uh, you know, Prop 112 and uh, many other things. So, uh, how has how has life been in Colorado this year, as far as in, in the in the industry? 
Well, we certainly were on edge with Prop 112. That would have put us out of business had it actually passed. It did not pass, but it didn't lose by a comfortable margin. It was, I think, 55 uh, to what's that leave us about 40 something. And it could have passed. You know, I think the last minute lobbying that people did, and a lot of it was just people, ordinary workers going out on the street with a sign saying, hey, my job depends on this was part of what got it to not pass. I don't think the TV ads were all that critical. I don't think putting up billboards is all that critical. I think when people saw us actually out on the street holding a sign saying, hey, man, this is me, I think that made a difference. But I don't think big corporate uh, spending really made as much difference as people think. Corporations spent some $30 million or so, um, but I don't think that's really what did it. I think it was you know putting a face on it is what caused it to not pass. Yeah, we, we, uh, we, it, it we, could pass. we heard that the Texas Oil and Gas podcast talking about it was what really put it over the top. Can you comment on that for us? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's probably it. You know, everybody up here says, hey, you know, that Texas Oil and Gas podcast and Ryan Ray, Josh Shelton, that's a thing. Uh, yep. No, but I, you did bring up an important, uh, important point there is putting a face on it. One of the things Josh and I have talked about a long time on this show is that you know, when you think oil and gas, you think, what's the price, or what war is being fought over oil and gas, or what spills happen around oil and gas. Rarely do you look at it and say, you know, there's Ryan, there's Josh, there's Lee, there's Bob, Tom, Sally, Mary. You know, and so putting faces on it is something that we need to do better as an industry. So it's good that you guys uh, did that. And it's an important issue for us, even in Texas. It's hard to see any position where we could have a Prop 112, but... Um, but Anything can happen. So break down. Let's recap real quick. What is Prop One One Twelve? As far as what would it have done, um, and then why did that come into place? Why did it get so much traction in Colorado? Well, Prop One Twelve basically banned new oil and gas development, and the way it defined new oil and gas development, it basically outlawed oil and gas. So you could operate your existing wells, but as you guys probably know, if you have a shale well it's going to decline real fast. So you basically have to drill new wells and you have to keep up with refracts. So you have to do a lot of reworks on the shale wells. And that's most of the wells here. You've either got tight gas hands, which has been going on, that development's been going on since the 1990s, or these new shale wells in the Nile Brera. So the way they defined new oil and gas development included drilling and fracking, horizontal wells, refracts, and also, you couldn't re-enter, say, a plugged and abandoned well and re-complete it. This would have been banned within 2,500 feet of stuff like homes and schools and other areas designated as vulnerable. And that could include features like intermittent streams or any area designated by a local government. So an intermittent stream or an irrigation ditch, those are all over. Right. So if you go a half a half a mile out from those, that's everywhere. Yeah, and, and intermediate streams, we've we've come across them in work before. Uh, there's plenty of those that really have um, not a lot of practical use sometimes, depending on you know what the terrain is, what's going on with um, you know drainage and stuff like that. But there's 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 some that, that that's not really um, you would see to necessitate this type of legislation, in my opinion, at least. Yeah, I mean they're not a vulnerable area in the sense of say like a class one stream like the platte river the or the you know the other rivers in this area it's what's scary about it it 
passed in La Plata County, which is one of our bigger oil and gas producing counties. So it's not necessarily people saying, well, you know, oil and gas holds up our economy. Let's vote against this. Uh, you know, you see people say, well, you know, it wouldn't apply on federal land. And we have some federal land in Colorado, not as much as, say, Wyoming or some of the other states. But the federal land around here, a lot of it's up in the mountains. The mountains are underlain by granite. And the granite is, of course, not prospective for oil and gas. So it's, it would have outlawed oil and gas. I think it's going to be back on the ballot for sure in a couple of years. I think the new legislature that we've got, which both houses are, went blue as both Democrats are. Governor is uh, pretty far left, liberal Jared Polis. The, in the primary, they allow independents to vote in the primary. And I'm an independent, so what they do is they uh, mail you both ballots. They mail you a Democrat ballot, Republican ballot, and you pick one or the other and you vote in the primary. But what happened, independents and moderate Democrats basically split between the two moderate Democrat candidates, and neither one of them came out of the primary. Uh, if there had been just one moderate Democrat, that person would have won, uh, but they didn't win. So we have this uh, farther left Democrat, Jared Polis. So I think we're going to have some issues with uh, with laws being passed against oil and gas in the next couple of years also. So you, you mentioned that one of the big counties um, where oil and gas production um, was going on is where it passed that, which was kind of concerning. But why? 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 What, what would lead the public to, to consider um, you know voting on a proposition like this? What would lead you know because it was it did pass in favor of oil and gas, but what would lead the public to go? You know what? Oil and gas is just not worth it. Um, we're going to get out of that business. Uh, aside from some of the constitutional legalities that that are involved with all that, um, just the public sentiment being against it that strong. You know, what, what, what kind of got us down this path? Yeah, there's there's several things. You know, one is that there's a lot of urban sprawl, and it overlays one of the bigger oil fields in the DJ Basin, Wattenberg Field. And so you have drilling really pretty close to homes. I had rented a place in uh, Windsor, Colorado, and there was drilling that was pretty close to our house, and it would, uh, it would shake the house at night, and it was annoying. I mean, it, that's a problem. Uh, so that's an issue. And you have the trucking if you've lived around oil fields, you know that you can have quite a little bit of trucking. Those are a couple of the issues that you see. Um, one of the things that really caused people to turn against oil and gas is we had a house that actually exploded in one of these oil and gas areas in Firestone. The town of Firestone is in Weld County, one of the bigger producing areas. It is from the center of Denver, about 20 miles north. So it's in an area where you've got these stacked pay reservoirs and wells are completed in all the different zones. This well that was implicated in this explosion was, it was completed in the 1990s, early 1990s, and the housing development in that area started sprawling out into that area about the same time. So when the developer submitted their plans, you can look through the plans. Um, they have them on the Oil and Gas Commission website. They showed demolition plans for the piping associated with several of those wells and reroutes for that piping, including the flow lines, that well had a gas line. It was an auxiliary gas line that took uh, wellhead gas under pressure over to a separator. It didn't burn it for fuel, but what it did was it took that pressurized gas and used it to actuate some valves. So that gas pressure 
would operate a piston or it would operate a diaphragm that would move the valve when they need to move the valve on the separator. Now, this line was supposed to have been demoed and rerouted. And what happened was the reroute got done. They installed the new line, but they never did demo the old line. Somebody probably should have inspected that. I don't know what their policies were. If the town had inspections or if the construction companies had inspections, if the oil company had inspections, nobody caught the problem. That old line was left in place, cut off on the one end, connected with a valve on the wellhead at the other end. And apparently the valve was shut from the 1990s up until the well explosion in, I think it was 2017. When the oil price dropped in 2014, they shut that well in. When the price went back up, they went out and they turned the well back on. And apparently when they went to turn the well back on, they opened that particular valve and put gas back down that pipe. And by that time, they had constructed additional houses. So the houses here have got basements, and due to high water tables around here, they construct them with sort of a French drain system around the outside. If any water comes up there, they collect it in those French drains, and every house has got a pump that will pump the water out. Uh, but there's this French drain system all around the bottom of the basement, and that is connected into the house to that pump. So these people moved in there, and the two men were in the basement, the resident who was a plumber and one of his friends installing a water heater. And this line had been venting gas into this French drain system for who knows how long, but you couldn't smell it. You know, it was mm -hmm. raw mm -hmm. gas from the wellhead. Yeah. So it's not odorized like right. if you had it, uh, yeah, in a regular gas system. So they must have lit that water heater, nobody knows, and it ignited the gas. Mm. And it's just a terrible explosion. Mm. So these two guys were killed. The wife was upstairs just horribly burned she was the house blew up and it lifted her up on top of a wall and she's just flailing around up there and the neighbors all watching this and uh, some guys that were working construction there got a forklift came over lifted her up off the the wall and got her down um their kid was at somebody else's house thank god and was not not hurt but it it was just a terrible terrible accident and it turned a lot of people against oil and gas. Right. It did enter. Yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously that's tragic. And, um, you know, kind of our position on the show is that, hey, f first off, this is a dangerous industry. Um, it's a life-saving industry at the same time. But it, when it goes wrong, it can go badly wrong. Um, and the oil and gas industry needs to make sure it takes responsibility. Now, in this situation, Josh and I definitely don't know the particulars. As you're saying, hey, it's kind of hard to figure out. You know what, who messed up and where it goes, but um, did did the oil and gas company, um, in your opinion, at least come out and take responsibility and, and and try to do their best to obviously you can't replace human life, but at least try to to say you know what this was where the fault lies. This is how we're going to improve these situations. And maybe was it too little, too late after obviously the the loss, the tragic loss of life. I I believe they did come out and fix all their stuff. They did go around and dig up flow lines, inspect flow lines. Is Anadarko's well. The uh, previous company that had owned it was a different company, Patina, that had owned it when they when they did the construction, the housing construction, that area, and then Anadarko had bought it out at some later date. Um, Anadarko does a good job of, of taking responsibility and generally have a good safety effort. I don't know what slipped through the cracks when they put the well back online. There's not a lot of information on that. Um, 
all the companies did have an all hands on deck effort, hiring contractors, going around digging up lines, reabandoning lines, filling them up with the different things. There's a concrete slurry you can put in there, or there's uh, different slurries you can put in the lines so that they're full, and you make sure you don't have any right. any fluids go down them. Yeah. Right. And let me just hop in here real quickly and just say this to our listeners. I know we have folks who work for oil and gas EMP companies and pipeline companies as well. And one of the things that I've seen professionally is come across companies and talking to them about uh, mapping out where they're um, lines are or, or what the case would be and it's like well you know we're not really worried about that we're gonna sell it or we bought an old system we don't really have the money to do it folks this is a matter this story right here uh, illustrates it's a matter of not only people's livelihoods but their lives um in, in the sense of you know life or death and the now obviously again it's not this isn't a scaremongering tactic i don't think texas is going to be going to a prop 112 like scenario anytime soon but on the flip side we as an industry need to hold the highest standard possible and uh, make sure that we are locating these lines. Because when you mentioned that Anadarko, you know, got the got the whale from someone else, it, it could be simply Lee that the previous company. I'm not trying to cast blame here on anyone. Just did not document where that line was, and so when Anadarko purchased it, um, maybe they didn't have the information. Maybe Anadarko's at fault, 100. I don't know. I don't want to speculate, um, but I just know that that's been a problem that I've seen personally in the industry is companies saying, you know what, we're not really going to spend the money to document this stuff. You have a line strike because you didn't turn it into um, a one call. You have all these things. These are the things that give our industry a bad look. And if you don't want the government in your business, Josh, what do we say? Don't give an opportunity, right? You know, right. don't give an opportunity yeah, over something. Yeah, you know, we we will have natural accidents um, that will happen just because we're humans and there's human error. But um, and again, this isn't Prop 112 specifically. These are the experts here on this, not me. But just in general, as we start 2019, let's start off on the right foot by making sure we're documenting where our lines are. Uh, we do not want to see any more accidents like this. Lee, thank you for all that. That's very informative, very helpful. Um, but one of the things when I got to the pleasure of meeting with you when I was in Denver a few weeks, you mentioned that you have a seminar that you go around and uh-huh. you teach, and you've got one coming up here the end of the month for the Houston audience, if they would be of interest. So first off, what is the course? What will you be teaching on? Um, and give us all the details about that. What I teach is what the one I'm doing in, in Houston is uh, Oil Fields 101. It's a for generally a non-technical audience, I do occasionally get somebody that's a, an entry-level engineer, and I think they get a lot out of it. In general, I get a lot of people who are from accounting. I get a lot of people from insurance. I get insurance uh, underwriters and adjusters because they want to know the no BS version of what goes on in the oil fields and what they're insuring. And I go through uh, downhole stuff on the first day. Uh, geology, reservoir, drilling, completion, equipment, you know, what it looks like, what's the difference between a rig and a pumping unit, so you know what you're talking about. Uh, go through uh, some of the jargon that you encounter in the industry. How do you repair wells if they're messed up? Second day, I go through the surface facilities, the tank farms, the uh, batteries. How do you get the water out of the oil, compressor stations, that kind of thing, and water processing, what you got to do to inject your your wastewater, or if you're going to recycle it, what's involved in that? How do you remove the salt? How do you plug wells? New regulations, I try and grapple with that. Obviously, I don't get a full uh, look at all the regulations, but kind of just the broad overview. Land, how do you go about leasing? Just some different topics, kind of give a flavor for the oil field and how do you grapple with 
your new job or if you've come into the oil field, say, from pipelining, what's different about it, that kind of thing. Okay, and that's January 30th and 31st in Houston, Texas. Um, where at, we're at in Houston, if y'all pick the location, and where can the listeners, if they say, you know what, this might be something for me or someone in my company, where can they go to find out more? The information on it is on euci.com, and I forget exactly which hotel it's in. They always put it on in one of the hotels. Um, I can put that for a link for you in the show notes. And I also have uh, some of the courses online on my site at www.oftrain.com. Okay, so let's recap that. E-U-C-I, E-U-C-I.com is where you can find out more information about the course on January 30th and 31st in Houston, Texas, if you're interested. If in the meantime you want to check out some courses that Lee's done in the past, O-F-T-R-A-I-N, oftrain.com. We will link to both of those in the show notes. Lee is on LinkedIn, which is how we met, right, Lee? So they can find you on LinkedIn, um, which would be a good spot to connect if they had some other questions as well, I'd imagine. Yep, that's probably the best spot to find me or on OF train, oilfieldtrain.com. Okay, and that's Lee, L-E-E, Denke, D-E-N-K-E, and you can search that on LinkedIn. And finally, Lee, it was great to get to meet with you up in Denver, sit down, had a good cup of coffee there at, uh, what was that place called? The, the Rooster Bar or something, or Rooster. Rooster, Rooster, Rooster Cat. The Rooster, Rooster Cats, Cat. yeah, yeah, that was a pretty cool little place. Had a cup of coffee there, great. and uh, great to have you on the show and hope your course goes well. And thank you for listening. Uh, we always talk about, we go out and meet with listeners, and we love to do it because we get to meet cool people like Lee. So, Lee, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Ryan, and thanks, Josh. Thanks, Lee. Well, thanks again for Lee Denke for coming on the show. Uh, it was great having her on to talk about some of the uh, some of the news and things uh, that, that she's been covering. Ryan, with that, I think that uh, I think that wraps us up for the day. It? Yep, if you're a winner of the of the prizes that we listed out earlier, 318-599-9192. That will be in the show notes. Also be on the lookout for TexasOilAndGasPodcast.com. That's coming soon. And until next time, keep climbing. Mm-hmm.